Well, I worked hard and I tried to come up with a new sermon for Easter. I was sharing with Joe a little earlier. <clears throat> I'm not very creative sometimes. And, and uh, I really did. I worked hard. I prayed about it. And I had started on something else. And, and then I get down to it and it's like I have to look at the cross. I have to remember what it cost Him to redeem me. And so... It seems like it's what we do at ICM at Easter, but it is what we do at ICM at Easter. Um, we, look at his, we look at His cross, and we remember what it's about. And, of course, we rejoice in the fact that He came out of the tomb. So, yeah, it's pretty much what I preach on Resurrection Sunday. I've told you before, I don't really like to preach so much on Easter because it's kind of too big. Um, I know it's hard for you to understand as a preacher to say that, but it's like so big, it's like maybe we should just prostrate ourselves for, for 45 minutes or something, you know? You understand what I'm saying? Um, it's one of the occupational hazards of being a preacher. You can never get there. Um, this is particularly true as we contemplate the crucifixion of Jesus, that unbelievably awful and unbelievably wonderful moment. Amen? Unfathomably awful. It's the worst thing that's ever happened in the cosmos. God has been murdered. But it's unfathomably beautiful and awesome and beautiful and wonderful and beautiful and beautiful and beautiful. He's died for His people. The God of Psalm 97, before whom the earth trembles and the mountains melt like wax. The God of Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The God of Psalm 145, the God of unsearchable greatness. This is the God who has offered up Himself for you and for me. I was with an unbeliever not long ago and he, the first question he asked me was, so what's up with hell? And he says, how can it be just? How can it be just? And you know what the problem with that question is? And I know you get this question and you may have even asked this question yourself, but you know what the problem with that question is? It's a totally man-centered question. You know, eternal conscious punishment seems unjust if you're looking in the mirror. But if you're looking at the God of Psalm 97, the God of Psalm 99, and the God of Psalm 145, you realize that if God says it's warranted, that it's perfectly just. And how blameworthy is your sin that eternal conscious punishment is the just uh, judgment of God against it. Okay? I, I, I want us to feel the weight of this. I want, I want us to feel what you deserve, what I deserve, and what God has purchased you out of. So don't ask the question, how can eternal conscious punishment be just. It is just. That's how great God is. That's how infinitely holy God is. That's how infinitely above you God is. So don't ask that question. 
I did an in-depth study on hell several years ago. And you know what I came away with? Worship. If you're thinking rightly about God, rightly about man, and you study the doctrine of hell, which is heavy to say the least, you worship. You realize just how great and awesome and holy He is. And just how awful and monstrous and heinous and ghastly your sin is. you understand what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm trying to give us some balance and perspective here. Right? Jesus died for my sin. Oh, it's background music to me. I've been hearing it all my life. I've been in the church. Yeah, it's background music to me. Well, I don't want it to be background music today. Right? I want you to understand what God did for you. I don't want it to be cheap and easy. I want you to understand what He's done for you. And He should have simply, as I often remind you, He should have simply judged you. You should have been in hell yesterday. I want you to feel the weight of it. I want you to feel the weight of it. I love the way Jonathan Edwards talks about this. He says, why should you not have wrath as great as the love and mercy which you have despised? Talking to the unbeliever. And of course, the unbeliever will. So I want to say this. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Eternal damnation is not the most outrageous doctrine in Scripture. The most outrageous doctrine in Scripture is that God would be a man and He would bleed out for you. That's the most outrageous doctrine in the Bible. It's scandalous that God would do this for you, a rebel. It's scandalous. But He has done it. So why is God on the cross in Jerusalem? Who killed God? Tell me, who killed God? Who killed Jesus? Okay. That's a good answer. The Bible says the Romans did. The Jews did. The Gentiles did. But preeminently... Preeminently, the Bible says, Acts 2.23, this man, Jesus Christ, was delivered up by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of who? God. This is God's initiative, right? We have to, always have to understand Jesus didn't get in a corner and end up on the cross. He came to die. We've been seeing it in the Gospel of John. He came to die. It's why He came. Inexplicably, because He wants to save you. And me. Yeah, that's a good why question. Why would God die for me? That's a good why question. So men of their own free will meant, meant evil. God meant for good. Men of their own free, depraved, rebellious will murdered the Son of God. God of His own free, gracious, loving will redeemed a people for Himself. You see how, how our God can take the blackest thing that's ever happened and turn it, you know, into a beautiful thing. A wonderful thing. A praiseworthy thing. A worship-provoking thing. This is how awesome our God is. He takes the murder of His Son 
and He redeems countless sons and daughters. It's an awesome thing. This is God's idea. This is God's idea. Jesus said it. We saw it in John 10 several weeks ago. No one takes my life. Nobody takes my life. I give it away. I give my life away for my people. So as, as I alluded to a moment ago, you know, as a pastor, and I'm sure you get the same thing if you're a vocal Christian, I always get the why question. Why did this happen? You know, why isn't God changing that? Why did God let that happen? Why doesn't God address this issue? What's wrong with God? God's always getting critiqued in the world. And I know you hear this stuff. But why is always the wrong question? When you're dealing with the biblical God, why is always the wrong question? Right? It's always the wrong question. What's the important question? What was the question of the Philippian jailer? What was it? What must I do to be saved? That's the important question. God doesn't really answer a whole lot of why questions. He just doesn't do it. You can ask Him why questions until the day you die. He may answer uh, several of them, but He probably won't answer very many, if any at all. He's not in the business of explaining Himself to you or anyone else. Okay? So the what question. What must I do to be saved? God answers this with the who question. <laughs> right? So who's the answer to the what question? Jesus Christ! There's no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved, right? <laughs> you know, stop with all the why questions, please. Okay? I, really, okay. You can come ask me, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to do the best I can, and it's okay to ask. But listen, let's start to try to spin off some of the why questions. Okay? Why don't we just look at God and rejoice? Okay, I, I'm here for you, man. If you've got a why question, uh, okay, Please come. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you. But what I'm saying is, let's, let's concentrate on what he's, the questions he's answered. What must I do? And by, and by whom can I do that? He's answered these questions. These are important questions for us to look at. You know, these why questions I get, mostly it's about victimhood, right? It's, why has this happened to me? And there's this victimhood mentality. I don't know what it's like in your home country. It's pretty prevalent in America. This victimhood thing. And it's just annoying, to be honest. It just annoys me. It's a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible says you are and what I am. We are rebels. You are not a victim. If you're an unbeliever, you'll get justice. You're still not a victim. If you're a believer, you get grace. You're not a victim. So stop with the victimhood. Please. Please. Do yourself a favor. And everyone around you, humbly remember that you're a creature made from dirt and that God has bled out for you. You remember that and you can put everything else in perspective. You understand what I'm saying? You can put everything else into perspective. So, and I want to say this, and I, I think, I don't know all of you well. I presume that most of you are born again believers. But let me say before I get into the text that let me just remind you that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
as I often do remind you, don't play games with Him. Don't play religion with Him. Don't, don't play churchianity with Him. You be serious with the God of Psalm 97, Psalm 99, and Psalm 145. So, it's how we started the Gospel. John 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us. God with His enemies. God with His, his creatures who hate Him. Yes, I am is in the womb of a teenage virgin. He's in a manger in Bethlehem. He's on the mount teaching. He's riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And today we see that He will be scourged and crucified because He is a God who saves. I don't want you to forget who He is. He's the galaxy-breathing God. He is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is a warrior and He is a shepherd. So, as we always do on Resurrection Sunday, we will take a moment and look at His death and then we will remember His resurrection. If you studied the arrest of Jesus, um, John 18, we'll get to it in a month or two maybe, um, you know it's no true arrest, right? He's in charge, right? <laughs> you know, about three to six hundred guys come out to get him, right? And he says, whom do you seek? And that, what do they say? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And what happens? You remember? He knocks them all down by the power of his word and his name. They all fall to the ground like dominoes, like bowling pins, Right? I guess they get up and dust themselves off and decide, okay, well, let's tie him up. You know? And it's like, some people, I mean, some people, you can't tell them anything. This was not a true arrest. You may remember Peter drew the sword and Jesus said, none of that. My hour has come. My hour has come to love my people in a way my people will never forget. The hours come to atone for the sin of my people. He says, I've come for this, and you could nothing could stop Jesus Christ from bleeding out for you. Nothing could stop him. He was determined. He was determined to save his people. First he was scourged. You know, Pilate tried to satisfy the bloodlust of the Pharisees. So he was given the 39 lashes, you guys. I'm sure you've seen the Passion of the Christ, a very realistic um, interpretation. The, the, the whip had metal balls and sharp bones and metal shards, and it would just literally rip the skin off of a man's back and his buttocks and the, the upper part of his legs. From his legs, his buttocks and his back would be raw. Sometimes bones would be visible. Uh, internal organs would be visible. Men died from um, scourging. Isaiah said it would be like this. Isaiah 53.5 The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging 
we were healed. John 19, 2-3 tells us that after they scourged God, they put a crown of thorns on God and a purple robe. And then they mocked God and they hit God in the face. Matthew 27 tells us that they spat on God and beat Him on the head with a reed. John 19, 5 and 6 tells us that Pilate said, Behold the man! And the chief priest and the crowd cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Then Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest says, We have no king but Caesar! Right? Israel has rejected utterly and completely her Messiah. John 19.17 tells us that Jesus carried His own cross after the scourging, which is shocking and stunning, to the place of execution. There would have been... There would have been four soldiers around him and one in the front carrying a placard that, that stated the crime of Jesus. What was it? What was the crime of Jesus? Pardon me? King of the Jews. <laughs> this was no crime. This is who he was. This is who he was. Crucifixion was so horrifying ghastly that many men had to be dragged there Isaiah 53.7, But He, being oppressed and afflicted, was like a lamb that was led to slaughter. John 19.17 and 18 tells us that they took Jesus to Golgotha and they crucified Him. This, this sheer economy of language, right? They crucified Him at Golgotha. They stripped God naked. They laid Him down on a crossbeam. They took seven-inch spikes. They drove them into His hands and His feet. The beam would have been hoisted vertically, dropped into a hole, and his shoulder blades would have been uh, disjointed or dislocated as the beam was dropped into the hole. Once a victim is hanging in a vertical position, crucifix is simply um, death by asphyxiation. You get to the point where you, you simply cannot push up to inhale anymore. And it's a long process, you guys know. It's usually two or three day, days, even longer. But Jesus gave up His life uh, before that time. So, Isaiah 53.10, God was pleased to crush Him, to render Him a guilt offering for you. And I, I, don't, I, I want you to feel the weight of it. <laughs> this is the most important thing that's ever happened in your life. And some of you never think about it. You never worship over it. You're never broken about it. You never get on your face and worship God about it. The God of Psalm 97 and Psalm 99 and Psalm 145, the God of Genesis to Revelation, He's the God that died for your sin. So we look at the bloody, brutal, savage cross and that's what your sin looks like to God. And I know we all underappreciate just how horrific our sin is. We're really good at rationalization and, you know, making excuses and, you know, well, uh, I'm just a human being and that's true, you are. You're just like me. <laughs> But I think part of the cross is that we would see what our sin is in the face of God. 
cross shows us that perfectly. We perfectly see it. So I want to say this one more time. Stop being concerned with your petty whys and thank God for the what and the who. Next time you're in a hard spot, next time the persecution comes, next time the trial comes, next time the heartache comes, remember, God has given you the answer to the what and the who. Right? (laughs) You understand the what and the who of Resurrection Sunday. It's the most important thing a man or woman can know. It doesn't matter if you know anything else. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if you know anything else at all. If you know the what and the who. You are blessed among men. You are blessed among men if you know the what and the who. You are blessed among men. It blows away all the stupid why questions, doesn't it? If we think about it rightly. So we know Jesus was on the cross for six hours. Matthew tells us, Matthew 27.45 tells us that darkness fell upon the land the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Symbolic of the curse of God falling on His Son. As we talked about two weeks ago, this would have been the hardest part of the crucifixion for Jesus Christ to be separated from His Father. He'd been together with His Father and the Spirit. You know, the, the whole Trinity thing for being eternity's past. And now, all your wickedness and mine fell upon Him. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? John 19.30 tells us that God shouts, It is finished. He has atoned for His people's sin. He yields up His Spirit. Matthew 27.50 The veil is rent. The earth shook. The rocks are split. And many saints came out of their tombs. Right? And God says to the whole world, Isaiah 65.1 Here I am. Why then should you die? I have made atonement for all who would repent and believe. So I want to stop and just make sure you understand. I want to make sure you understand what all this is about. It's about your wages. What are your wages? Death are your wages. And Jesus just took your wages. Listen, don't let this be some abstract religious thing, right? Don't let this be some kind of academic thing. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus just received your wages. Yes, we, we, we die in the flesh, but we have received eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's about your wages and mine. So, I'm not going to waste any good pulpit time on, you know, the skeptics and the critics who want to explain away the resurrection, who who, who try to explain away the empty tomb. I'm not going to waste any time on that. I will say this. uh, If you have issues with that, uh, Lee Strobel addresses it quite well in The Case for Christ. This is a great little book. If you don't have it, anyway, you can have this book. This is the only one i got left, but if you want it, you can have it. For 1995, no, you can have it. So we don't sell stuff here. Uh, so if you want it, you can come get it. It's a, 
it'll be very helpful for you and or for maybe an unbelieving family member or friend. But the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most thoroughly attested events in ancient history. Um, he appeared no fewer than 10 times over a period of 40 days to more than 500 people. And we're going to spend the last few minutes highlighting one of those appearances, okay? <laughs> and it's really personal for all of us in here who are born again. We get it. We're going to get this. We're going to get His appearance to Mary Magdalene. We're going to get it. So, I'm going to be in John chapter 20. And it uh, be good if you turn with me to John chapter 20. Verse 11, we'll start there in verse 11. And uh, yeah, I know I didn't preach a text um, tonight, but uh, I've given you a lot of texts um, during the message. But here in John 20, verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So, okay, <laughs> who were the first skeptics of the resurrection? Everyone who loved him. These were the first skeptics. He had told them in many different ways. He was coming out. But none of them believed Him. Mary loves Him. She's weeping, but now she's weeping for no good reason. Right? Right? There's no reason to weep. He said, I'll come out, and He's out. Then she talks to Him. But she still doesn't know it's Him. You might say, well, you know, she recognized... But the text says she doesn't recognize Him. There's something that happens here that... The born-again believer understands. So how does she finally recognize Him? What does the next verse say? You tell me. What does the next verse say? Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary! And nobody said her name like Him. Right? Just like you heard Him say your name. She, she heard it. What'd she say, Rabboni? She heard it. You know, she heard it. She heard her name called out by God. Right? Just like you. You know, real Christians, yeah, yeah. Way to go, Lee Strobel. We love you guys, you scholarly guys, you smart guys that pass, you know, they stack up all the evidence. I love that about you. That's great. <laughs> I don't need that. He's called me. I've heard him call me. He's called me by name. He's called me into relationship. I know Him. This is why born-again believers do not doubt the resurrection. Yeah, I'm good with all the evidence, but I don't need it. 
<laughs> I've met the living God. I've met the resurrected living Christ. I've met Him. I know Him. This is why Christ true Christianity will never die. It will never die. I don't care who comes against it. Well, we already know. <laughs> the Lord has told us the gates of hell will not prevail against biblical Christianity. So, like I say, I don't know all of you in depth, but if you do not know Jesus, I just offer you the famous invitation of Jeremiah 29, 13, and 14. God says, if you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And he says, I will be found by you. So no man's going to stand before God and say, well, I couldn't find you. God says, if you seek for me with all your heart, you will. The only reason men don't find God is kind of like the thief trying to find a policeman. You understand what I'm saying? It's because they don't want to find God. They don't want to find God. They want to be a little sovereign and live like they want to live. Believing they don't need to be saved at all. So, Jesus is who He says He is. He is the incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascending, reigning, and returning God. And most of the world thinks we're fools, right? We're, we're, we're simpletons. We're, we're worshiping a, a dead Jewish carpenter in here on Sunday, right? It's a joke to the uh, intelligentsia, to the elites. We're just idiots. We're Neanderthals. <laughs> but we know, right? We've heard Him call our name. So happy Resurrection Sunday, Christian. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And as the revelation tells us, <coughs> He is coming quickly. He is coming quickly. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And John tells us in John 16.20, every sorrow will be turned to joy. And I heard John Piper this week preaching about the joy of the Christian. Do you realize that the joy God has set aside for you is so big that it would crush you if God did not enable you to receive it? I just thought that was a great thought, right? God, the, the, the joy God has set aside for you for a billion eternities, it would blow up your heart and your mind and your soul. It's too big lest God enable you to receive it. So beloved, it's Resurrection Sunday. Worship. And then, be who you're supposed to be in the world. What, what, what are we supposed to be in the world? Light. Good answer. Anyone else got another answer? Salt. Good answer. Another one? Disciples. Good answers. Man, you guys know what you're supposed to do with all this. So go be that. Go be that in the world. There's a there's a lot of folks who need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight. Um, all who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and followed Him in believers' baptism, you are welcome to partake. Uh, Orazio will come or Candy will come. Someone will come and play uh, some melody. 
you prepare your heart and your mind to come in repentant, humble worship. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of Me. So you humbly come in remembrance of what this awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God has done in your behalf. So during the music, when you're ready, come, take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat. After the music stops, I'll stand and read a text and then we'll partake. Let's prepare our hearts to remember what Jesus Christ has done.